0: when they were hyperscaling, that one of the things they look back at which they would have done was go get experienced people in those general management roles quicker. Whether it was a founder running a general management role, so somebody who's actually built a company, putting them in sort of a, a line role, or going out and getting somebody that actually really understands that, the business that they're selling into.
1: Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators podcast, powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting edge platforms. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs, so you can develop custom tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com. On this episode
2: of the SMB Tech Innovators podcast, my guest is Zach Miller, founder and managing editor of Tearsheet, a modern media company which explores the future of financial services with an eye on technology, innovation, new models, and changing consumer expectations. Zach, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this one because you've been doing the podcast game longer, longer than I have. And I think you have a lot to- Yeah, never in this seat. (laughs) Really? This is the first time you've been a guest? I think it is the first.
0: I've done a lot of public speaking, but never on the other side of the podcast. I'm always interviewing other people.
2: Well, you're a fantastic speaker, and I'm excited to have you share some of those insights with the audience. But first, give us a little bit more who or what is Tearshi, and more importantly, how did you come to found a media business?
0: So I never started out with any interest of getting into media. My background is in society economics in university, and my first job in finance was as an analyst for a hedge fund. But I found fintech, and you know, this is going back 15 years, we weren't using that term then, it was always very interesting for me. It was clear that you had incumbents that weren't really innovating, and you had these bunch of new companies, I'm thinking back to the early days of Lending Club, that are doing something novel out there, and they're getting big, and they're scaling, and So I started as I was an analyst and as I was in wealth management, blogging and podcasting in the background. It really was a hobby. It was a way for me to meet some of the entrepreneurs in the space. And over time, an audience was built. I think I was early to the space. I've done about 650 episodes of my podcast. We have a newsletter now. We do conferences and we have reporters that report on the space. And what's different about Tearsheet is that we really focus on innovation from the incumbent's point of view. And that's been an evolution for us. I think we started out a little bit enamored with some of those shiny new objects. And it became very clear to me early on that a lot of the top venture-backed fintech companies would struggle to be standalone businesses. And where the real struggle was, was the incumbents trying to figure out how to stay relevant. It's a long-term thing, but it is clear today as we look going forward that the future from my perspective and from our reporting is that incumbents aren't going away. There's a value for them they need fintechs. They need to partner with fintechs, need to acquire fintechs eventually to be able to continue to be innovative.
2: Well, I appreciate that, Zach. And would you say, hey, focusing on the incumbents or carving that out as your audience, that's one of the main things that makes Tearsheet different? I think there are other
0: publications that focus on incumbents. I think it's that intersection. I think intersections are really interesting. It's the intersection of incumbents with innovation slash technology. That's our focus. It's not We, we write very little about regulatory evolution. We write, talk very little about cyber or fraud, but it's more the front end of the business. What new products are you creating? What partnerships are you doing? What new offices are you opening? What new
2: business lines are you getting into? That's what's interesting for us. I'm curious if there are any moments or any examples where that sort of crystallize, like, that intersection is really interesting for you.
0: I mean, it's clear we've used this terminology a little bit. It's a little bit harsh, but like innovation theater. And if you look at a lot of the big incumbent banks, many of them have innovation groups. Now, you know, a fintech, a technology company doesn't have an innovation group. You just are innovative. It's not something you do over there. It's not sent to that department and then try to work in it. It just in the fabric of what you do. Banking institutions, with you know, some have hundreds of thousands of employees. It's just, you know, they still have IT departments. And so... Innovation is a way, it has to be just a first leg into breaking things open. So it became clear to me as I was speaking to innovation groups, how hard that actually was for, so I can't necessarily put my finger on a specific thing, but how hard it was really for them to do innovation because it was something that had a department head, had a budget associated with it. Most of the innovation groups are also charged with investing in fintechs as well as some strategies it is externalized in the sense that it hasn't yet become the fabric. And and some of the bigger banks are getting there, but this is one of the biggest challenges for me. And from a business point of view, frankly, a media business, obviously we'll talk about this, but companies need to make revenue and be able to stay alive, right? So in a media business, we have an audience and we sell subscriptions, but we also have sponsors who want to connect and talk to our audience. So you have to be very clear in a media business who the buy side and sell side is. And clearly for the most part in our industry, the, the incumbents are the buy side. So the better we do in telling their stories and their challenges and getting them to listen and engage with us, the more opportunity it is for fintech companies or other technology or consulting companies to come in and communicate with that audience. So our readers are primarily like heads of product, heads of digital, heads of marketing at a lot of the largest USFIs.
2: Well, I appreciate that, Zach. And sure. I think I'll say personally, having worked with a lot of startups, it's easy to kind of end up in the bubble and think that, oh, we're just the one in, ones innovating and kind of disrupting those big established players. And I think in the case of financial services, that is by no means the case. And I'm excited, or no, solely the case, and, and I'm excited to get into that with you just a little bit more. So let's go one click deeper on some of the trends and let's say some of the lessons that you've seen over the past. And maybe I'll break it up into what do you think are the most important trends or lessons over the last few years for fintechs? first, and then for financial institutions. And I think because you talk to both of those audiences and you see a lot of those things and you talk about that intersection, I think it's worth kind of teasing out both separately to start. So pick any order that you want, but let's start retrospectively. Most important trends and lessons from your conversations over the past few years. How hard it is actually
0: to be a breakout fintech. Distribution matters so much. And It takes a Herculean effort to be able to build your own distribution, and it requires a lot of money. And now we're seeing as funding sources have dried up, it is hard. So we've seen a lot of direct-to-consumer, direct-to-business fintechs that have started up over the past few years pivot and go B2B. I think that is a natural progression for a lot of companies. It makes a lot of sense. You kind of cut your teeth on understanding what the real challenges are in the business, and then the software and the platform then becomes a platform in that sense. I think that's one of the major things is how hard and impossible in certain cases it is to build real distribution. Some of these banks and financial institutions from a brand perspective, from a marketing perspective, from a distribution perspective, have like over a hundred years of legacy. That's crazy. It matters less, I think, with younger consumers, but it still matters and it is still a competitive moat. And so I think if one of the questions I like to ask fintech founders when they come on our show is, you know, would you do this again? Because a lot of what I found is a lot of fintech entrepreneurs, they don't come out of the financial industry. They're not familiar with the level of regulations, not familiar with really the onus of what it takes to run a financial institution. They get in and obviously, you know, they're super competitive and they want to win, but it's a horrid surprise. And so I think a lot of them would not get in. That's what they tell me on the show. Some get addicted and can kind of double click and continue to go into the problem they're trying to solve. But for the most part, it it is a really hard industry to break into. We don't even use the word disrupt on Tearsheet, both in our reporting and on our podcast. There is no disruption and there is no revolution. All that language that you read like on TechCrunch and all these other publications that do a good job covering FinTech, it's not exactly accurate and honest about what's happening in finance. It may be that the banks lose it out long-term, but it's a multi-decade process, right? So there are now 4,000 financial institutions in the U.S. That's down from eight, but that took, you know, 20, 21 years or something like that to have. We will continue to shrink the footprint, but banks aren't going away. And I think that's a major, it may may sound pretty trite, but
2: that's a pretty big takeaway. Well, importantly, do you think part of the reason, the fact that we have half roughly the financial institutions that we had 21 years ago or whatever it is, do you think that's put more of a premium on distribution? Is that part of the reason that for a new idea, for a new financial product, you have fewer outlets, you have fewer ways to access the customer today if you're not going direct, which we already said is really hard and very expensive. Well, I mean, it, it's the product of a lot of things. It's this, and
0: 8,000 to 4,000, was, that was down from 12,000 or 15,000 years before that. And no other country in the world, I, I believe, is that overbanked the way the U.S. is. So it is a macro thing. It had to do also with the financial crisis. The previous one where the too big to fail. So they propped up some of the biggest banks. There is an expectation that, you know, another thousand, couple thousand banks will, will be jettisoned over the next few years. And your question is, how does that impact distribution?
2: If so, if you're a fintech selling into those companies? Does it put more of a premium on distribution if it's more consolidated with fewer institutions? I think
0: so. I think it re-entrenches the winners and it makes it harder to compete with them. It means they also, the other side of that coin is that they don't have to outperform to be able to still stick with business, there's a lot of intransience and a lot of inertia within financial services. Would, if you look at the data, a lot of times, like small businesses, for example, when you ask them, they don't feel fully served in their traditional financial institutions, but very few of them are looking to make a change. And that's, be, and we can talk about why that is, but that's different than
2: consumers, by the way. Mm-hmm. Well, let's double click on that because this is the SMB Tech Innovator show. So we want to talk about the business banking side of things. Sure. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more. Why do you think that is? Or are there other insights in that survey data that tell us why folks might not be satisfied fully and yet not be hankering to switch? Well, I think it's, it's pretty clear why they're not happy, right? So for most
0: institutions, small businesses fall in Neverland, right? So they're neither here nor there, Goldilocks, whatever it is, it's, you know, big banks service big enterprise and they service individuals and small businesses are neither. They have different needs in both of those. So I think for the most part, SMBs feel like invisible within a large banking institution. And so they supplement that by using apps, you know, and I think the average SMB in terms of finance, I think uses six to eight apps or something like that. As a SMB owner myself, I know I am have different apps for everything. I haven't found one thing to actually own to rule the roost. And so that's a challenge, right? And so that also creates the inertia, right? So for me to be able to move that core banking relationship and the way it's hooked into that little ecosystem, that financial ecosystem I built for myself, I built my own little embedded finance ecosystem would require ripping a lot of things out and changing all the workflows. And so that's a really hard thing to do. And I think that creates a lot of, yeah, grass may be greener. I may be interested in, I know there's better opportunities out there, better tools for me, but I just, I'm going to stick with what I know. Cause like I you know, I'm doing all I can to keep my business afloat.
2: Well, so we're already getting into a really interesting intersection point, and that is call it the small business CFO stack and their financial services. So maybe let's quickly sidetrack into what does your crystal ball say for the future of SMB tech? You know, you already talked about how you have to piece together all these different apps, that takes work, and then there it increases the switching cost if you were to try and you know, find some mythical all-in-one out there in the future, but there's a rise of folks who are trying to build those sorts of all-in-one tools. I'm curious if you think, call it vertical SaaS or some of the others, where do you think SMB Tech is going? Where do you as a small business owner see that future and sort of, you know, better opportunities coming down the pike? We've had a lot of them on our show. Some have been our sponsors in Tearsheet,
0: and I really believe in the companies that we work with. I want to tell a story first, I guess, to address that. I got a call around Christmas time this past year of somebody who was using an embedded financial tool from one of the big companies. And there was an issue in processing he was billing and the money wasn't hitting his account, though the payments were going through. And he asked me if I would get on the phone with his banker, which was interesting, which means he was using the embedded tool, which holds the money, moves the money. And yet, still got swept back into an incumbent bank. And there was an issue with that whole setup. And it turns out, by the way, the guy, the banker who was the head of, I don't want to say which bank it was, but he was a tear sheet reader as well, which was kind of cool to be able to talk to him. But it was clear to me this was a guy who ran a nice business, was using the modern tools, and yet behind it all was still sweeping stuff back into the traditional one. I didn't ask him why, but I think that's what you will find with a lot of SMB. So I do think the future is embedded tools. Like I think. There are some great direct options out there. The neo banks that are targeting SMB, whether it's a bank or it's a series of APIs, I think those tools are really good. Banks still play a role in there. So if the fintech isn't a regulated entity, they have to use a partner bank for certain financial transactions. So banks play a major role there, whether it's technical, you have to use that bank for say underwriting or whatever, or it's just trust. At the end of the day, somebody wants to know that there's a bank there if there's an issue. And so I do think that the future is is vertical SaaS. I think it's going back to this distribution problem. It's really hard to go direct to get a financial customer. And what the embedded finance has done within vertical SaaS is basically say like, banking is not somewhere I need to go. It's something I do. And I do it in the course of the work I'm doing anyway, and the tools I'm already using anyway, at the moment of pain. So I can actually solve my problem instead of actually going to another app and doing banking, whatever that is. I'm actually taking care of my finances and in the, you know, whether it's accounting or payments app or my scheduling app, whatever it may be, I think that's the future. I think that is the future.
2: It's a fascinating one. And when we talk a lot about it on the show, who do you think is doing, if we maybe not just the vertical SaaS piece, but you know, if we talk about embedded financial services writ large, maybe who are some examples? Who do you think is doing it really well today or as well as can be done? Like who's actually a good example to hold up in terms of that intersection between small business technology and these embedded financial services.
0: You know, it's interesting. We've been, on Tearsheet, we've been writing about, before it expanded to embedded finance, it was called banking as a service, this type of market. We've been writing about it for five years and we even have had conferences five years ago on this topic. And so even though I'm saying to you, Brian, and you know, like it is one of the coolest things and I think one of the most impactful things within finance today, we're still like not there yet, not even close. So to a- answer your question I don't think there are a lot of great examples but the one I do point to is Intuit with QuickBooks and the platform they built around QuickBooks. We've done a lot of work with them reporting on what that it's one of my favorite examples of a company that kind of got it early and it takes a lot of time to be able to work this out so what Intuit has done around QuickBooks is really build an entire ecosystem around it. So you know, I remember QuickBooks, you know, going into an Office Depot and buying, you know, a CD or DVD on the shelf and coming back and putting it into your home computer but obviously, you know, online now and and Intuit made that transition online and around it, they have built a marketplace of services, right? Whether it's they have their own lending. So it's a great place for a software company to be because listen, you're sitting on top of invoicing, payroll. You you actually see all the guts, the financial guts of all these small businesses, millions of small businesses. So I can really understand and anticipate some of their needs. So what Intuit did was build this marketplace of primarily around lending. So, you know, obviously cash flow and keeping cash flow consistent is really important for small businesses. So whether Intuit would lend their own capital or partner with third parties, like you did that within the system and can be pre-approved, which is obviously a, a major sort of removing friction in the entire process. And what Intuit has done recently is introduce banking account services within their ecosystem as well. So if I'm a small business, I'm spending a few hours a day within the accounting app, you know, I can not only track where you know my inflows and outflows but i could actually use financial tools to be able to fill in the gaps where i need to and i think that's super powerful and i, I think the intuit team from the people i've met they're high quality people all around they really kind of understand it and they live and breathe that they still do these walk homes which i thought was amazing right so this started i don't know how old intuit is but 40 years 50 years i i don't know how old the company is but the owner of the company, the founder of the company, used to go to Office Depot as I was describing before. See somebody buy a CD on the shelf and walk, and then ask if I can go home and see how you use it. Right? They still do that today. Senior leadership still does that to understand the pain points that small businesses have, and there are many. So I feel like one of the main ways in is through through accounting or through payroll. I think also Gusto. I think you, the where you guys sit in the whole ecosystem is also very powerful.
2: Well, we certainly hope so. And we're excited about it. But I really love that phrase you said, Zach, which is banking should be something you do, not a place. Not mine. I cribbed it from one of our
0: guests. Yeah. There's another one. And this came from an embedded finance executive. He said that in the future, people will bank with the brands they love. And that one also resonates a lot with me. Like people don't generally love their banks. They're a necessary part of my business life, of my financial life, but I don't necessarily love it the way I would love you know, my on-demand delivery or Netflix or Amazon or whatever like that. So, you know, if you can embed financial services in those brands where it makes sense in workflows and in my life, like
2: I'm open to that. And people have shown they're open to that. I love that. People will bank with the brands that they love. That seems like a wonderful crystal ball. I'm curious then, you've kind of teed up, hey, and maybe a brand I love, maybe in the Intuit case, like I trust QuickBooks with all my accounting. And now it's not only very convenient, but the loans are great offers or are well-tuned to, to sort of what I need. So I feel like you're teeing up a little bit the brand and potentially the data and visibility. If you had to put money on these two horses, so to speak, for the future, what do you think matters more in terms of making embedded finance successful, especially with these small business tech tools?
0: Wow. I, th- maybe it's not an or. Maybe it's non-binary. It's an and because... I think brand is so powerful. Like you look at the power of influencers, you know, which really speak to, I guess, a generation younger than me, but I'll give you another example. There's a financial brand that has a deal with Mr. Beast, you know, probably the best known influencer out there. I live overseas. I live in Israel. My son, who's an Israeli American, has never lived in America. He's 16 now. And I was telling him about this fintech brand. He's oh, I know that brand. He had... Actual brand recognition of the brand because Mr. Beast wears a hat from that brand. And I was like, wow, this kid doesn't even live in the target market, but he totally had a familiarity and a trust of a brand that he probably will never encounter in his life. And I was like, that is really powerful. So I don't think brand goes away. I think brand is really important. And you look at Goldman Sachs and some of the evolution that company has gone through and the JP Morgan chases, like their brand value, even if they don't get it right and they continue to go, it continues to go up. But the data, obviously, to your question, I think underlies everything. And I think when you look at a bank, one of the challenges banks have is every product they have is typically on a different platform, a different core banking platform. You know, if you look at a big money center bank, they're going to have the platform they use for credit cards to be different than banking, which is going to be different than SMB banking. And so they don't really have a unified view of their customer, even though they have all this data, this rich data, this very valuable data, but they can't really... Connect it. They're starting to get there, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. FinTech companies get it. Embedded finance companies really get it. So the ability, like an Intuit, to be able to make a pre-approved loan for me because they're checking my data flow, because they even have view into some of the suppliers that I do business with, so they can even extrapolate the quality and the safety of my own supply chain. That is gold. That is gold. And so I don't know if they work separately or they have to work together at a certain
2: point. But I see power in both. Well, I like that. It's not an either or, it's a both and when it comes to brand and data visibility to make these things successful. I want to pop back up. We started by talking about trends and we started focusing on distribution, particularly for fintechs. Are there any other trends or lessons for fintechs in particular that you think are really relevant, really important that kind of over the past few years that are going to influence what happens the next few years? I think learning how to partner and partner at speed
0: and at depth is a differentiated, valuable skill that the fintechs who survive will have to have. And if a fintech goes ahead with an, you know somebody servicing SMBs with a financial institution, that may or may not work out in the future. And I think understanding how to create those win scenarios and understanding the challenges that a bank has and how to position your own company, your own value proposition so that it makes sense to work together, even if you somewhat compete, but you can find a way to cooperate over certain clients. I know banks need that and banks are working really hard on understanding what it takes for them to be able to partner at speed and at scale. And they're getting better at it. And there's some middleware companies and other companies that are trying to help make that happen. But at our conferences that we lead a tear sheet in our reporting on our podcast, the ability for a bank to partner is top of mind for a lot of bank executives right now. That's a huge trend, the partnership piece. So in the beginning of the story, the beginning of the fintech evolution, I would say it was David versus Goliath. And we tried never to spin that at Terashi because it was clear that you have a 137-year-old institution like Goldman Sachs, you know, that has done trillions of dollars in transactions over the years versus a, a startup that maybe raises $100 million in Silicon Valley, but, you know, two 30-year-old kids, all the power to them. But it's unlikely they're going to unseat that company. So learning how to work together, I think, is a really important one. I'd say that's probably one of the top ones, I would say. In terms of, I would also say hiring, and obviously the tough market that we're in right now is really important. I'll give an example of one company and it is a partner of ours. So I want to disclaim that it's Argyle, which provides business data, obviously payroll data specifically. One of the things that they did, and we've, I, I've sort of and matured is in their hiring, they ended up hiring a lot of people with experience as general managers. So if you think about payroll, there's different use cases for payroll, different industries. So the GM that runs each in- industry, Shmulik, CEO, founder, Went out and got somebody that actually knew that industry and can speak directly to it, which actually takes some guts, I think, for a fintech company to reach outside. I did a podcast in the fourth quarter of last year with the CTOs of Brex and Plaid. And both of them said at different points in that conversation that when they looked at when they were hyperscaling, that one of the things they look back at which they would have done was go get experienced people in those general management roles quicker. Whether it was a founder running a general management role, so somebody who's actually built a company, putting them in sort of a line role. Or going out and getting somebody that actually really understands that the business that they're selling into. And I think that's also another important one. So I guess both those themes, the connecting thread between both of them is the merger between the technology
2: industry and the incumbent industry. Well, so Zach, maybe lastly, what's interesting is when we talk trends, you've barely mentioned crypto. You haven't talked anything about quantum. You haven't mentioned AI. That's kind of refreshing these days, but I feel like I need to ask, why not? So that's a great point. It sounds like that's something I would say on my podcast.
0: I think, you know, if, if I did a hundred podcasts last year, certainly in the second half of 2023, like those things came up everywhere. AI, it's like, we can't have a conversation about ice cream right now without talking about AI. I had a, a podcast with Ed McLaughlin, who's the CTO and president at MasterCard. We haven't published it yet, but actually we wanted to talk about those three things. And I think it's really important to get an experienced, deeply technical person to talk about what that means in the industry. Because I think technologists, having been an entrepreneur myself, we are in a little bit of an echo chamber. And so AI is absolutely disruptive. But wait a minute, like for a bank to start implementing AI, like we're nowhere near that. They may use AI like in filling in, you know, tables and, and doing some reconciliation work at the end of the day. But to unleash that technology on a customer when you can't control it right now, that's like the antithesis of financial services. So I don't mention those things. So one of the roles I feel like Tearsheet plays for our readers and our listeners is to help differentiate like the wheat from the chaff, the sizzle from the steak. And basically like our readers are the head of product at Goldman, are the head of product at JP Morgan, head of division there. And so like, what do they need to know that's going to impact their business over? That's how we look at things over the next three to five years. Quantum, you know, again, I think there's some cool things you could do in crunching numbers for, for fraud. And it sounds like MasterCard is already starting to do that, but like nowhere near doing that. Crypto, I actually have gotten sucked into the crypto mania like twice in my career as a journalist, as a reporter, still waiting for those use cases to really make it there. We've had guests on our program that started out building crypto companies and crypto has sort of moved into the background. It's no longer like a feature. It's sort of like, it's just a platform technology. There's some great pilots. I think 2024 is gonna be a year of pilots particularly around like CBDCs. And again, it's just testing. We're nowhere near going to unleash something like that. AI, I think is different than those other two technologies. I think AI, certainly like in just the operations of banks, whether it's marketing, writing emails, writing scripts for TV commercials, whatever it is, like AI is already being there, is already being used. But in terms of unleashing it, like in a chat bot for end users, we're still not there. The fact that it can hallucinate, like that's a banker's worst nightmare. You don't want your chatbot to hallucinate and fall in love with your customers. Or, you know, if you don't have control over it, what the chatbot takes a stance that's contrary to your bank's recommendation. You don't want to take that loan. That loan's too expensive for you. You can't afford that. So I think we're, we're a ways away, but I do see AI and the rapid evolution that it's had and maturation it's had just over the past couple of years. I do see that it's already being used in back office operations, reconciliation loans, and, and, and creating credit worthiness scores and things like that. but I'm excited about that, actually. Of those three, I think that one's going to be the most interesting to
2: watch. Well, I appreciate that. And more what I hear you saying is, hey, where the rubber hits the road, there's got to be a real benefit out of it, like the technology that don't matter. If it provides a benefit to some task that has to get done to some business owners need to write that email, then it's valuable. But as a te- standalone technology, it's got to still got hurdles to clear.
0: We asked this to our audience, what are your three biggest issues? So in our last conference in New York in June, we call it the Big Bank Theory, is our sort of flagship conference We had bankers of all sorts there. And among the top three issues that they had, speaking to Gen Z is really important for them, whether they're a business bank or a commercial bank or a consumer bank. They understand that they don't get this generation and they are worried that if they don't get it right, they're going to lose out. So that's an important one. And real-time payments is another one
2: that's top of mind for them. So I just wanted to share that appreciate that. Real-time payments and speaking to the next generation of consumers. Great takeaways. Zach, I feel like you've already shared some fantastic advice for the fintechs. One, learn to partner early. Two, think about hiring, especially as you hit that hyperscale. Think about hiring general managers, people who understand either your market or your business really well and generally. On the financial institution side, you already talked about, again, the recommendation is learn to partner at speed, learn to partner at depth, and learn to do it really well across, obviously, a very big complicated organization. I'm curious if you'd have any other advice for either of those two audiences before we let you go.
0: One thing that hasn't happened, and this is interesting, is in spite of the shortfall in funding, rapid you know drying up of funds, we haven't really seen acquisitions. We haven't really seen buyouts. And we've been talking about it for a couple of years. I actually don't know if they're going to happen. Valuations were so high that most banks, because they're risk averse, You're not going to see an AOL Time Warner merger. I just don't think you'll see one. So I don't know where the exits are for a lot of fintech companies. So I would say unit economics in a market like this, super important. Like Banks get it. That's why they stay in business for so long. If you're a fintech, you got to figure out a way to get profitable. And as a standalone company, I think that's a super important one right now, particularly for this moment in time.
2: Sage advice. And I appreciate it, Zach. Thank you so much for joining today, sharing some of your wisdom and learnings over the years. Before we wrap up, if folks want to reach out to you, connect, have questions, go deeper, want to learn more about Tearsheet, what's the best place to direct them or to connect with you? Sure. And it's
0: been a pleasure talking to you as well, Brian. Our website is tearsheet.co. That's T-E-A-R-S-H-E-E-T.co. We're on all the major podcast platforms. We've got a daily and weekly newsletter. And this year we're rolling out working groups. So if you're listening and you want to get involved in terms of collaborating with executives at banks, at fintechs around some of these important topics that Brian has brought up today, reach out. We'll have some more information about that. And I think one of the most exciting things that I've found has been when you get smart people and put them in a room, even if they are in different, little bit different parts of the industry, whether they're FinTech and a banker, smart people, sit them at a table, talk about business, beautiful magic stuff comes up. So I hope to be able to facilitate more of those interactions this year.
2: Well, that sounds exciting, Zach. And I will say as a faithful newsletter reader, I appreciate all the work you and the team at Tearsheet do. Great insights. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as well.
1: Thank you for listening to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com.